Let's look at Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. I had Mark read beginning in, chapter, in verse 1 to kind of refresh our memories where we've been, although it's been a few weeks. So here we now, we pick it up in verse 13, Paul's words to the church in Rome. And the word of God reads, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Holy Father, as your word has been read, we ask by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would please anoint and enable me to declare this truth to expound that which we have just read for the understanding of your people and above all the glory of your name. Lord, may we never waver from understanding that a sinner is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to your grace alone, as the scriptures alone declare for the glory of God alone. Bless your people this morning. For any, Lord, who remain in a hardened state of unbelief. For any who are deceived by thinking that because they know the facts of Christ, that that saves, may they be transformed to know that they must place their faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the Christian, there's no record of your sin that will ever be held against you. You can say amen. Amen. (laughs) Uh, But yet, in addition to that, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and you're actually declared as righteous. God declares you as righteous because Christ lived the perfect holy life in the place of the believer and then willingly shed his own blood in order to purchase pardon and purity for those very same people. That's God's gospel. That's justification. And we believe that by faith. That's justification by faith. Now, before we proceed, we must not forget... Paul's theme in Romans, which takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 16, where he declares, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. They are, Romans 3.24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a satisfaction, to be received by faith. No record of wrong ever to resurface for those who are in Christ. No record uh, or, or, or the fact that you owe a debt for your sin. No condemnation. And the fact that you truly are reckoned as righteous as received by faith. Faith. Romans 4 is the great Bible chapter on justification by faith alone. Alone. Now, many people People claim to believe in salvation or justification by faith, but not justification by faith alone. The word alone is the watershed that divides the Catholic from the Protestant. I'm not bashing on Catholics, I'm just telling you the facts. The Catholic believes in salvation by faith, but not in faith alone. They believe in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of the blood of Christ alone. They accept the fact that Christ is mediator between God and man, but not that Christ alone is mediator between God and man, because Mary also participates in that work of mediation in their minds or in their theology. And as a result, they acknowledge the authority of their scriptures, but not the authority of scripture alone. We've had members here actually request to be released and leave here for the Roman Catholic Church renouncing justification by faith alone. Just this month, a a Presbyterian pastor resigned his pastoral position renouncing justification by faith alone. And part of his resignation reads as follows, and he left for Catholicism. He writes, and I quote, regarding, regarding sola fide, the Latin term for faith alone, I have become convinced that the teaching that sinners are justified by a once-for-all declaration of acquittal on God's part based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness received by faith alone. I've begun to doubt whether the Bible alone can be said to be our only infallible authority for faith and practice. And despite my efforts and those of others to dispel these doubts, they've only become more pronounced. End quote. Man, pray for that, brother. That's a sad state of affairs. You know, and I wonder what caused the shift. Now, I read this gentleman's book uh, three years ago. And I sensed in his writing... Uh, what seemed that he seemed to make a hardline distinction between what's, known, between what's known as the sacred and the secular, or otherwise known as a two-kingdom theology. And that the blessings of God can almost only be experienced by the believer 
in the corporate gathering of the church. A phrase that he had in that book was that Christianity works best as an underdog. Now, there's some truth to that. But oftentimes, a hardline belief in such a statement may lead to a monastic kind of withdrawal into ritual, liturgy, and sacrament where you end up replacing the gospel. Now, at first, when I read the book three years ago, I thought maybe I'm being too critical. So I dismissed my thinking, my critical thinking. But recently, an author and pastor brought up the fact of this man's departure. And he, he asked the question, and I quote, what led to this man's departure from justification by faith alone? Was it two kingdoms theology? Was that the gateway drug to his departure? Was it confessionalism, a high view of the sacraments, an appreciation for history and liturgy? It could be all or none of the above. And, he goes on to say, even if it were all of the, of the above, that would not necessarily indict anything on that list. End quote. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But, the writer goes on to say, I do know that he's sadly getting sola scriptura and sola fide wrong, and that should deeply concern evangelicals. And I say amen to that. By denying justification by faith alone, sola fide, along with sola scriptura, the authority of scripture alone, oftentimes the natural outcome is that the church itself or one's connection to it, along with practices, actually becomes their gospel. It just does. In conjunction with the idea that, yeah, we do our part, although it's not enough, but, they reason, that's where Jesus comes in, providing the rest. That, beloved, is a profound, profound and perverted alteration of the gospel. Paul here, beloved, in Romans 2, 3, and 4, is arguing that Christ's finished work is truly finished. And for anyone to join anything of their own to the righteousness of Christ in pursuit of justification before God is, beloved, inherently dangerous. Paul has been dealing with the false ways that men think they can get to heaven, at least back in the first century. The Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of Paul's day, had been deceived by their own moral religious code along with their own ethnic heritage and the rituals, most of which God himself established. But yet those things don't save. Now, Paul has thus far argued against and consequently destroyed two formidable foes of the gospel. Two crutches that people attempt to lean on even to this very day. One is self-righteousness thinking that you're righteous in and of yourself by their own imagined goodness. They believe that they can justify themselves before God. Some people believe in justification by death, right? They think just because you die, you go to heaven. That's justification by death. That's why people say, well, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. 
Not if they're not in Christ, they're not. This was as good as they had right here. Life on this earth. So Paul destroys the misnomer that Abraham found justification by way of works. He cites Genesis 15.6. Abraham was justified by faith in God's promise, not his works. And therefore, he has no grounds, verse 2, chapter 4, for boasting. All boasting is excluded, amen? For the sinner is saved by grace through faith alone, and even faith is a gift so that no man may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So that's enemy number one. Enemy number two that we looked at a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, is religious rites. And in this case, in context, it was the sign of circumcision. It was a sign given by God to Israel, but not until after Abraham had already been what? Declared righteous by faith alone. And then many years later, the sign of circumcision was imposed. So we can sum up that deeds, creeds, confessions, or sessions provide nothing more than false assurance if you're depending on those things to save you. Signs and seals given by God are indeed of great worth, beloved. But never do we find in Scripture that these signs and seals are given in order to save us or provide some kind of infused grace that merits us salvation. So again, we're never saved by something we do, be it circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism or or, uh, communion in the New Testament. Attending church doesn't save you. Children, going to church won't save you. The Jesus you hear about is the one you must place your faith and trust in, personally. You need him. Because you, like mom and dad, are a sinner. You, like your pastor, are a sinner. You need forgiveness. You need the work of Christ. You need the love of Christ, the power of Christ to save you. You must trust Him in Him alone. So attending church doesn't save, but this is where we proclaim the whole counsel of God, the indicatives of Scripture, along with the imperatives of Scripture. We'll say amen to that. Amen? Amen. The whole council. So growing up in a Christian home is a privilege. The sign of the circumcision in the Old Testament was a privilege. No one is saved by proxy. There's as much need for justifying grace through faith for a child that grows up with with the privileges of a faithful family as there is for one without. As a matter of fact, the one who grows up with the privilege is held that much more accountable. Our salvation must rest, beloved, in Christ alone, and that is individual dependence. That's the basis of Paul's argument. So what use then? By way of review here, what use then are signs, especially signs that God has given, New Testament or Old Testament, what use are they if they don't save? What part do they play if, in fact, they don't play any part in saving us? Well, they play part in this, beloved. They play part in testifying, not justifying. They testify to the fact that only God justifies by grace. 
Paul points out why Abraham was given the right of circumcision. It wasn't to confer righteousness, that is, award him salvation. It merely confirmed the righteousness already granted to Abraham according to the grace and mercy of God. And faith to believe. So, baptism in the Lord's Supper in our day. It does, it does not confer righteousness to us, but confirms the righteousness that true believers already have by faith in Christ. What? Alone. Alone. So Paul has thus far destroyed two enemies of the gospel. That is the idea of trusting in one's own self-righteousness and number two, trusting in ritual. And this morning, we'll give our attention to the third enemy of the gospel for which um, Paul will draw upon and that is the law. Okay, That is attempting to justify, justify oneself by adhering to God's law. So Paul sets before us two paths, beloved. One way is the road of law or works, whereas the other is the road of faith. The road of faith. Now, many Jews mistakenly believe that Abraham, their spiritual father, had trekked the road of God's law and that they're merely following him. Paul says no. Our patriarch of the faith did not go down this path in order to be saved. As a matter of fact, it was impossible for him to be saved by, the way, by way of the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law didn't come into effect until hundreds of years later. Notice Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So in a symbolic and foreshadowing way, the sequence, remember Genesis 15? That's the chapter that God deemed Abraham as righteous? That was before Genesis 17, where he receives the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Before the sign, he was already declared as righteous. And that indicates for us that God puts anyone right with him, Jew or Gentile, by faith, whether or not they come under the Mosaic law. The purpose? Chapter 4, verse 11. Notice. The purpose, 11b, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was what? Circumcised. See, that's important because the Mosaic law had to do with the behavior of a redeemed people already in the covenant, already in a covenant relationship with God. That's the reason David could say, I delight in your law, O Lord. As God's people, his law was aimed at securing their health, their happiness, and their holiness. They couldn't earn salvation by way of adhering to the law. It didn't add to their salvation. And as New Covenant believers, we can draw a parallel here, amen? 
Think about it. The practical requirement of the epistles, when we read the epistles, we read the New Testament imperatives or commands of Scripture. Do they add to our salvation, beloved? The answer is no, they do not. Can we earn salvation by way of obedience? Absolutely not. But the imperatives of Scripture for us, New Testament, New Covenant believers, have to do with our spiritual peace, our spiritual prosperity, and spiritual power as sons and daughters of God. Not to merit salvation. No one can earn their way. It's by faith alone. So, by faith alone. So the Jews in Paul's day were espousing Abraham as being saved by this path of law-keeping. First they claim you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul answers, Abraham wasn't. Second, they claimed you have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved. Paul answers, the law didn't come until 430 years after our patriarch, patriarch was already deemed as righteous. And God deemed him righteous. He says in verse 13, notice Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Faith. Not through the law, not according to works righteousness, not according to self-righteousness, not according to religious rights, but through the righteousness of faith, a gift of God, according to his grace. So God imputes or places upon the account of Abraham from the Lord Jesus Christ a righteousness that comes from God. Well, Jesus didn't come to earth until hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham. That's right. But he was looking forward to the one who would uphold the law and lay down his life. He looks forward by faith. We look back by faith. So for any who attempt to be saved by good works, they enter the path of law. And Paul, Max, tells us the results. So if you know anyone, beloved, or if you're here this morning, and you think, well, in order to be saved, I'm going to do my best and try to, you know, obey the Ten Commandments or something. Notice verse 14. For if the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. Wrath. Paul says if you want to take the path of your own self-worth, if you want to take the path of the Mosaic law, that feeble path of your own self-perceived goodness and meritorious effort, you will face three consequences. These are in your notes. This is in your outline. Three consequences. Consequence number one, if people can be saved by works, faith is null. In other words, faith is worthless. Worthless. Why? Because faith and law are opposed to each other, beloved. They lead in two totally different directions. Who's going to leave here today and say, yeah, I'm going to Los Angeles uh, and Tijuana at the same time? Can't happen. It's two totally different directions. Los Angeles is north, Tijuana is south. You can't walk the path of law and faith for salvation at the same time. To choose one is to reject the other. So when you leave San Diego, you're either going to go to Los Angeles or to Tijuana. Tijuana. So departing for one voids out the other. If you go the way of law, faith is null. 
So an attempt to earn salvation by way of the path of the law looks at your own works, your own effort, your own goodness, and you ain't got none. And in order to earn this way. Now, does that mean, beloved, that the law is evil? Absolutely not. Paul will ask this question later in Romans 7, and his answer, certainly not. Of course it's not. The law and commandments of God are holy. They are in no way defective. They always serve their purpose, but nevertheless, you cannot be saved by adhering or attempting to adhere to the law. You break one, you've broken them all. But they serve their purpose. Okay, a mirror serves its purpose, amen? Most of you all looked in the mirror this morning. It served its purpose. It revealed that you were disheveled from a glorious night of sleep. And that you needed to comb your hair and perhaps put on a little lipstick, needed a shave. And when it revealed that, you did not pull the mirror off the wall to shave yourself or comb your hair or apply lipstick. Right? It, all it did is it exposed your condition. That's all it did. And then hopefully it leads you to that which you needed to undishevel yourself. A good bar of soap, some shaving cream, a little bit of makeup if you wear makeup. In the law, it was given to expose your condition, our filth, our unworthiness, our sin, which drives us where? To Christ, to the cross. So to remain on the path of self-effort as a means of salvation, Paul says it will only condemn you in the end. Faith, however, looks in the opposite direction. Not at your accomplishments, not at your self-efforts, but in what God has accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. So Abraham, all those many years ago, wasn't looking at himself, because you know what he was in and of himself? He was a pagan idolater. That's all he was. That's all I was. That's all we were. Pagan idolaters which inevitably leads to self-condemnation. Abraham was looking to God. He was looking to the promises of God by faith. Looking not to self, but looking to what God had done and would do on his behalf. So faith says, look to Christ, look at his accomplishments, and thereby live. Turn from the law as a means of salvation and trust in the work of Christ on your behalf. According to faith, what? Alone. So the path of law, Paul says, voids out faith. Whereas the path of faith, not faith in faith, by the way, amen? Not faith in faith, not faith in some God small g or some guru or some religious government, but in Jesus Christ alone. He's the one that saves. He's the only one that saves. Truth is not relative. So if salvation is based on trying, it cannot be on the basis of trusting, can it? It's trust in what he has accomplished. So faith is not of works, it's of grace. It's not law, it's belief. It's trust. This is the basis and foundation of all that God gives. And a God-honoring life, beloved, is simply the result of grace. 
We don't live a God-honoring life in, in an attempt to earn grace, do we? No, if you have faith and trust in Christ, you are a recipient of grace. And you want to magnify His goodness and kindness by way of obedience. Not to earn salvation. Obedience doesn't earn salvation. Moral straight-edgers don't earn salvation. You've heard of moral straight-edgers, right? They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't have sex outside of marriage and all that. That's all good in of itself, but that's not going to save you by doing and not doing. It's faith and trust in Christ. And when we realize that we've been graced in being saved according to Christ's work and His worth by way of the work on the cross, raising from the dead, ascending, ruling and reigning, sending the Spirit to live and dwell within us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, we are appreciative, we are thankful, and therefore desire to obey. You can say amen to that. So are you on the path of walking a life of faith in Christ alone? Sola fide? And and by the way, not merely believing with intellectual assent. Because you know, believing the facts about God doesn't save you if you only believe the facts. You've been raised in a Christian home. You know the facts, right? You know the facts. Knowing the facts don't save because Jesus said even the demons believe the facts. But what do they do? They tremble. You know, you can know the facts about someone without knowing them. You know, when Michael Jackson died, oh, yeah, I knew Michael Jackson. No, you didn't. You know, all of a sudden, a celebrity does, oh, I knew him. No, you didn't. You just know a lot of facts about him. And the reality is he didn't know you. A political scientist may know many facts about the president of the United States without knowing the president personally. Whereas the gardener of the White House, who may know less, far less facts, may have a very personal relationship with the president. Amen? So there's the first consequence. Adhering to the law washes out faith, makes it worthless. Second consequence, the promise of God is useless to us. He says here, faith is null and the promise is what? Void. It's void. In other words, if anyone can inherit the promise by his own efforts, that is, keeping the rules of the Mosaic law, then the unconditional promises of God, they're made invalid. There's the second consequence. So walking and trusting in the path and principle of self-righteousness, trying to keep the law, nullifies or reverses God's promise of inheritance, righteousness, salvation, and glory. I did a funeral for someone here. Unbelieving, unbeliever's funeral. And I told the wife that we would sing Amazing Grace at the end. And she said, oh no. My husband was no wretch. Really? Really? Grace is a gift to those 
God has revealed his riches. Granting them the faith to believe in the grace dispensed through the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You're not a wretch. If you don't think you're a wretch, you're probably on the path of law, which leads to judgment. Now, if God promised to save men only if they uphold his law, then no man can be saved, can they? Because to uphold the law of God, you must uphold it perfectly, flawlessly, in a holy manner. So such a promise would nor could ever be fulfilled, and Paul has already proved that, because there's no mere human being that can uphold the law of God. And if such a promise existed, it would be worthless because no one could execute it. Listen to the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Law means failure. Therefore, if the promise had been made through the medium of the law, what God was giving, as it were, with his right hand, he would be taking back with his left hand. There would have been no promise at all. It would have had no value whatsoever. End quote. So the promise would be unattainable because it would require absolute perfection. That's the point. This is what Christ did. See, God has determined and decreed that such promises are only found on one path, and it's the path of faith. He says, enter this path. Look to me in all that I have done for you. The law can't save you. The law is that mirror that shows your failure, that reveals your depravity. This is the mercy of God who provides the path of faith, beloved. His perfect work is the only salvific path. Faith in what he has done. Faith in who he is. So that's consequence number two. Consequence number three, the final result of attempting to trek the path of either religious rights, self-worth, self-effort in the law will be condemnation. Again, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Because every person fails to uphold the decrees of God. And the further one walks in attempting to uphold the the law, the greater the failure. As you gaze into that mirror, all you see is failure upon failure upon failure. And it should drive you to Christ. That's why we're here this morning, amen? We've been driven to Christ. We've been graced to be drawn by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, to the Son of God. So the practical outcome of the Mosaic Law was not to save, but to show us just how far short we fall of God's standards. So any soul, as we studied in Sunday school this morning, we look briefly at uh, Exodus 19. Remember the, the thunderings of Sinai? where God gave the law to Moses to be carried out and handed down to the people, what did God say? Consecrate yourselves, for if anyone even brushes up alongside of this mountain, they will surely be put to what? Death. When you hear the law resounding from heaven, you don't run to the mountain, because there you die. You run to the promises of God found in Jesus Christ alone. That's where Abraham walked. So here now, from underneath the feet of any and all who insist on trying for salvation, Paul has cut away the ground of all self-effort. 
Men, men are left here with no righteousness that is acceptable to God. All religious exercises, all rites, all rules are futile because those things can't save if you're trusting in them. You know what's great about the law? Number one, the Ten Commandments, as we learned this morning, was given to a people already graced by God and in a covenant relationship with Him. He says, because I've delivered you, this is now how you will live. And he enables us to live in such a way. But to the unbeliever, preaching the gospel, we must begin with what? The law. You begin preaching the law. The standards of God must be declared so that man and women, women who don't believe can see their failure. To see how miserable they are. You'll never experience grace and mercy until you experience conviction and misery. Amen? This is what we've experienced by the grace of God. Oh, I can't do it. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. Yes, you are. But here's the gift of my son. And stop believing with, just in the facts and submit yourself to him and you shall be saved. That's faith. And trusting oneself to the finished work of Christ. Notice in verse 15b, he says, where there is no law, there is no crash, uh, transgression. Now, what that doesn't mean is that there is no sin where the law is not declared, where the law is not known, because God, God's wrath does exist outside of the knowledge of his written law. We studied that in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Chapter 2 and verse 15 it says, they show that the work of the law was written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else excuse them. So you ask the question, what about the pygmy in the depths of the South American jungles who never hears the gospel? Or they're guilty because they have a conscience. The law of God written on the heart. But where there's transgression is once the law is established in your face. Transgression means to pass beyond the limits of a definite positive law or command. For instance, visiting my folks because of the death of my brother, I was there a few weeks, and I was sitting on their back deck. And everyone has fences now separating the yards. And when I was a kid, I had a paper out. There were no fences. So we used to, you know, knock off a few minutes of our paper route and cut through yards all the time, even on our bicycles. Now, when I first started doing that, my conscience said, yeah, you probably shouldn't pass on to private property. So at first, my conscience accused me. But the more I did it, you know what happened to my conscience? It excused me. Until one day, there was in one yard a sign. Do not cut through the lawn or yard or whatever, however they phrased it. Now, if I would have passed through the lawn as I had before, now I would be transgressing the law. That much more accountable. That much more accountable. So law is there to make known to us that we've sinned against the holy, righteous, almighty God of the universe. 
And faith brings us into God's family. When we realize this, we we fall according to faith and God's grace in submission. Paul says, verse 16, that is why it depends upon faith. In order that the promise may rest on what, beloved? Grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. In every case, the key to the whole matter is faith. It's believing faith. So it's justification. According to God's grace, by faith alone in Christ alone, he who forgives the sinner, declaring him righteous and representing the believer as righteous. And that's what we need. We need representation, don't we? We need representation, beloved. On the cross, Christ represented us in two ways. And listen to this and hone in as as, as I wrap this up. Number one, he represented us in taking the punishment for our sins, past, present, future. I opened with this this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the what? Say it again. Little guy, where are you? The righteousness of God. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous. He represents us. At Calvary. Second, he represents us as in perfect obedience and righteousness. Romans 5.19. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made, what? Righteous. It's justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So we need a perfect record of obedience and righteousness to enter God's eternal kingdom and presence. So faith, beloved, is believing in. Not merely believing about, believing in and relying upon God, relying upon his promises. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift and an abandonment of all attempts at works righteousness. It's an unqualified trust in God who gives life to the dead according to his grace. Grace, unmerited favor. And faith links us to that grace. One commentator puts it like this. It is the hand of faith reaching up into the unseen that is grasped by the already kindly outstretched hand of God as we take exclusive possession of the benefits and blessings that he bestows on us. Who's the initiator of salvation? God. Almighty God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. So there is nothing uncertain about faith. The true believer who's uncertain about his salvation, if you struggle with assurance, is not looking at the finished work of Christ with the eye of faith, but is looking with doubt at his own works. As well he should, amen? But turn your head and look to Christ and keep your eyes affixed on Christ. If you're looking at your behavior, what you do and don't do, you will be miserable. 
Oh, you will be miserable. Look to Christ. Continue to look to Christ. Affix your eyes on Christ. What he has done, he deems you righteous. He deems you, deems you pure. And live your life in a response to that. Not the other way around. That's why when we sin, we confess. And we repent. And we turn. And we burn back to the cross. Amen? And we bow. So what becomes of those who deny sola fide, as I open with? What becomes of those who deny faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's grace alone, as declared through the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone? What option is there? The path of law. That's it. You resort to the path of law, and it leads to condemnation. Only the path of faith leads to glory. Amen? So if salvation is on the basis of trying, it nullifies the basis of trusting. Again, if salvation is based on trying, it nullifies the basis of trusting. That's what Paul's saying. Salvation is based on faith in Christ's work, on Christ's worth, not our works in addition to Christ. He's our all in all, amen? So whatever this little movement is of people renouncing justification by faith, I can only attribute it to the enemy who's intruding the minds of people who think that they have to add something to Christ's work to be saved. Pray for them. Guide them back on the path of faith if you know anyone like that. Finalized picture of the path of faith given to us in Revelation. This is my last text, and I'm done. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Not to God and man. To God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Represented in glory are all kinds of people worldwide from throughout time who walked the same path of faith that Abraham walked, Jew and Gentile alike, affixing their eyes on the promised one, Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled it all. And unto him I owe. Amen? Raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. We've been graced with righteousness. May we never, ever forget the gospel. Amen. Justification by faith alone, according to God's grace alone, in Christ alone, as the scriptures alone declare, for the glory of God alone. Amen. Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We do thank you that It's not contingent upon us to do something to merit salvation, but to entrust ourselves to you, the author and giver of life who's provided the only way. Faith in Jesus Christ, your glorious Son, our great Redeemer. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, for this pastor and those who've left here renouncing justification by faith alone. Lord, I pray for those dear people. 
I pray that you will unscramble their thinking. Lord, any deception that is set in, may they be reminded that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man Christ Jesus. That you're the only way. You're our only hope. And it's faith in your Son alone and His work and worth, we pray. Help them, Lord, to come out of their deception or their confusion, whatever the case may be, and help us to remain steadfast on the path of faith, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as we pray in His name.